0: This is an audio recording of an award lecture presented at the 2022 Annual Meeting of the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. So it's a great honor for me to um, receive this Tabor Award and, and to be able to tell you about my journey with cyclic AMP signaling. and. I just wanted to begin by just acknowledging Herb as such a, an amazing contributor to biochemistry, one of the biochemistry giants, um, who who um, was a friend and colleague to myself as well as so many of us, and took over the leadership um, as editor in chief of JBC in 1971. So he was editor for almost my entire career, um, and he and his wife were, were pioneering, uh, Cecilia were pioneering uh, biochemists, so we all owe a deep gratitude to Herb. And I also wanted to start by being a tribute to um, Eddie Fisher, who also just passed away quite recently, both over a hundred years old, and Eddie for my field has been a real mentor uh, for all of us. Um, showing how to be a a great scientist, how to build a sharing and and collaborative community and also how to have fun. This was, I think, the 100th birthday of ASBMB where we were celebrating, and so my journey with PKA began when I came to San Diego. I had been a postdoc at the LMB lab in Cambridge, and I I spent a year with Nate Kaplan, and um, that year Nate put on my desk this paper. I was sequencing LDH. That's how I got tenure, sequencing LDH, but um, anyway, I This was a paper by Fritz Lippmann. He had described the R1 subunit of pKa and how it regulated the catalytic subunit. And he said, you know, this is an interesting enzyme. You should think about working on it. (laughs) And so that's how my journey with pKa began. And I'll go back to some of the history, because I think it's important for all of us to remember um, that history. And um, the field really began with their pioneering work, Ed and Eddy, on on phosphorylase kinase um, in the 1950s. But then this pKa was the second kinase uh, to be discovered. It was actually a contaminant and phosphorylated and activated phosphorylase kinase. And that was a decade later, also by um, Ed Krebs. And um, and then a decade after that, we, we had this flurry of activity with um, a cancer biology with SARC being a protein, and then a protein kinase, and then Tony showing that it phosphorylated tyrosine. So it kind of brought together. These were pharmacologists, biochemists who were interested in energy metabolism. And these were cancer biology people. And so um, I focused on PKA, and I'm also going to tell you, 1991 was that first structure. So I'm going to tell you. So what were we doing in the beginning? And so I knew how to purify proteins. Um, We would do 10 liter columns and get 10 kilograms of heart from Farmer John (laughs) in uh, Los Angeles. But we made protein, and my one of my first graduate students, Mark Zoller, did this experiment um, to identify the active site, and this was a affinity analog for ATP. And Mark identified one lysine residue that um, was labeled. The kinase was inactivated, um, and you protected with ATP. So we predicted or hypothesized this would be at the active site. And then Eddie, um, and they actually published the sequence in um, 1981. And then we knew this was lysine 72. And we knew there was a phosphorylation site right there as well from other work. And then, and these were two Mark's paper and this, those were two JVC papers. Um, and we showed that it was cross linked to two um, carboxylic acid groups. And those turned out to be. Um, uh, glutamic acid-91 and, and 184, and so we had this little triad that we thought was going to be at the active site. And, um, and then, you know, we began cloning, and so um, a couple of years later, this was enough sequences that could be aligned by Tony to actually map out this family in these subdomains, but, and this is kind of the Rosetta Stone, the sequence and this genetic information. This is the Rosetta Stone, but what is, like, what does lysine 72 actually do? And so my mantra um, from my training at the LMB has always been that one needs a structure if you're really going to understand function. And so we began very early on trying to get a crystal structure of this catalytic subunit, which was solved in 1991. So um, this is um, over 30 years ago now. <laughs> um, and but you know what we missed? What we missed from that. Um, That structure, this is a static structure. All crystal structures are static structures, and what we missed was the dynamics. And I'll tell you just a little bit about that, because that's an essential part of kinase function. And so what did we learn from that first structure? So um, we learned first the fold. So you knew that fold was going to be conserved in every protein kinase on that tree which was now growing. The conserved motifs, those are the little white dots, and lysine 72 was one of them. Mostly they cluster around the active site. Um, ATP binding, that actually came from the uh, 1993 paper, Um, and actually this was a novel ATP binding site. We didn't make a big deal of that at the time. Before that, um, P-loops were, Michael Rossman didn't even believe our structure at first because it didn't have a P loop, a classic P loop. Peptide binding. We had this high affinity uh, inhibitor peptide. It's a pseudosubstrate. It has an alanine instead of a serine, and it binds with high affinity. So we were incredibly lucky. I mean, this was uh, incredibly lucky to get this beautiful structure. I think it's still probably the most perfect protein kinase structure. And then the role of phosphate. So we had. Um, In addition to one at the top, we had this activation loop phosphate, Um, and so it's an active kinase. If that phosphate isn't there with most kinases, that whole loop is disordered. So first I wanted to, of course, look at our residues that we Affinity labeled, and they were all clustered together there right at the active site. So that early protein chemistry really captured perfectly um, this active site uh, uh, conformation, And we consider this to be a conserved regulatory triad. What about the power of a phosphate? You know, it can just be an electrostatic node, but it's much, much more here. You can see how that single phosphate really nucleates the whole kinase. It's not very active without that, and it brings together all parts of the protein. So it's really extraordinary, the power of one phosphate. And so this is, again, JBC JBC did a commemorative um, series for the protein data bank and I wrote an article for that and this is sort of Saying all the things that came together over those 30 years of trying to understand more about the structure and and how this works as a molecular switch Um, And this is like in IUBMB sort of the hydrophobic core architecture Which is really a very fundamental feature of of the uh, protein kinases and? this dynamic coupling and really we're we're with Gianluigi Veglia, where you label the side chains the hydrophobic side chains is the only way you really can appreciate how correlated those motions are when you add ATP Um, and so then what did we learn from the structural kinem? so by this time you know these kinases were very important in disease so very quickly other structures began to appear and so we had a, a whole lot of structures and so you can do a lot with one kinase, like PKA, but you know to ask what's conserved in active kinases versus inactive kinases, you need a, a set of different protein kinases. And so, no, this was um, uh, work that was done by Alexander Kornel, a, a spatial alignment computational analysis, what residues are conserved and um, in the active kinase but not in the inactive kinase, and you know obviously. PKA has since become all all these um, FDA-approved kinase inhibitors, it's a a major industry now. But what we found in that first one was that you had four residues in addition to the active site residues um, that I've told you a little bit about, we had these four conserved hydrophobic residues. They weren't always the same, but they were always hydrophobic, and we called this a regulatory spine. And two are in the N-lobe and two are in the C-lobe. And it's really now become the signature motif of every active kinase. If the kinase is active, the spine is assembled. And you may need something else, but this is really a key feature. And you can just see with SARC, this is inactive SARC, and you can see the spine is broken. And if you look um, now at the assembly, when you activate SARC, it, it correlates with the assembly of that regulatory spine. And you can look at one more thing, like the activation loop, which I told you about. This is now activation loop, which is actually becoming phosphorylated and undergoing a major change. Um, and then one last thing is um, this triad, my little triad that I told you about. And if you watch that now, this glutamic acid is way out in, in solution. And when you come together and have the active kinase, those three are together. So it's a a fundamental feature. And then another thing was um, just a graduate student, Adam Bastidis, um, crystallized PKS, a a substrate version of um, PKI with AMP, PMP. um, And in this crystal lattice, he actually captured both substrates and products. So we got all the steps of catalysis with um, with, with this substrate. And I don't think you have that for any other kinase. And then one last thing about the C subunit, that this is the N lobe. The N lobe and the C lobe, by itself, that core, that conserved core, is not very active. In the case of PKA, you have these tails that wrap around both lobes and are really a key part of regulation. In most other kinases, you have other domains, SH2, SH3 domains in SARC, um, calcium and phosphodiacylglycerol binding domains, PKC. PK is unusual, because it's small, um, and it has these tails. And what Kanan Natarajan Natarajan, um, uh, showed was that that C-terminal tail is conserved in all the AGC, that whole branch of the AGC family. And you can see here just some of them where we have superimposed the N-lobe and the C-lobe. And if you now melt away, you can see how that tail is conserved. And this part um, uh, at the bottom is absolutely conserved in all of them. And this is highly regulated, how you assemble that with Uh, autophosphorylation and heterologous kinase is a major part of how you regulate and activate these kinases. So how is PKA regulated? So it's synthesized as an active kinase. Um, Now you have the GPCRs, which um, of course people knew about at the time, um, hormones and neurotransmitters bind to GPCRs. The G proteins were actually discovered in 1977, sort of in the middle of that route, after the kinases. And um, GFS is the critical one So for activation of um, adenylate cyclase. So um, you get the generation of cyclic EMP. And, and PKA, it's important to recognize is stored as uh, mostly as an uh, uh, inactive Holoenzyme uh, complex and it's the binding of cyclic AMP that unleashes its activity and then another feature that's involved over the past decades is this anchoring um, by a kinase anchoring proteins especially um, and this has pine- been pioneered by John Scott um, as it's not just floating around but localized to specific sites. So if we think about you know we can learn a lot I've told you what we learned from the catalytic subunit by itself uh, but in the cell this actually exists as a as a uh, as a dimer. Our uh, subunit is a dimer and it's a, a, a tetramer, the holoenzyme. And then you have four different regulatory subunits. And what's also really important from knockout um, experiments, these are functionally non redundant. So one doesn't just compensate for the other. They're doing different things, these four regulatory subunits. And then, of course, they're anchored, and there are many, many anchor, uh, ACAP anchoring proteins. I, I mean, probably uh, uh, close to 100 at least. Um, and, and so it's targeted to specific sites. So we we think of these. I think of these as PKA signaling islands, and you can have multiple islands in the same cell. Sort of this little island is committed to regulating this channel or this transporter. Um, and so the regulatory subunit it has a different architecture. It has this dimerization domain, which maintains it as a dimer, and then it has the cyclic nucleotide binding domains. But it has this intrinsically disordered region. Um, in the middle that has a site an inhibitor sequence that looks like a PKA substrate. And um, and this is an intrinsically disordered region. So in the absence of the C subunit, this region is very um, disordered. So again, we began with the R subunit, and then this told us the cyclic AMP binding domains. But um, in the structure, you actually did have this inhibitor site here here, but it was all disordered. And so it took, we had to go to look at, Uh, complexes with the C subunit to understand the inhibition. So the red part is um, the inhibitor sequence that now docks very stably into the active site cleft of the um, catalytic subunit. And these cyclic NP binding domains are are really capturing the C-lobe of the um, kinase interacting with it. Okay, but you didn't really, those those RC complexes like that look pretty much the same for R1 alpha, R1 beta, R2 alpha, R2 beta. And so um, we really had to go to the full length holoenzyme to be able to appreciate the beautiful symmetry of um, the, the pKa holoenzymes. And now when you have it, it's like a dimer of a dimer, RC, two RC dimers coming together. And here you realize, this is where you see the, um, the uh, functional diversity, you can see it now when you assemble the holoenzymes enzymes that this is also reflected in the structure. And this is just showing R1-alpha, has. there's a lot of um, disease mutations associated with R1-alpha, and, um, oops. And let's see if I can get this to go. They're um, scattered all over the two cyclic AMP binding domains, especially. And some the green ones are activating; they make it easier to activate, and the red are um, harder to activate. So it's it's many disease mutations there. And then I'm also going to focus in this last part about some of the things that we've learned very recently since 2019. And one of these things is this. Um, R1-alpha uh, forms these phase-separated uh, bodies, and that's a dynamic buffering system for cyclic AMP. and you can see these little um, uh, puncta. I mean, we'd actually seen those for a long time, but it was um, uh, uh, Jason Zhang, um, uh, uh, Xin Zhang's uh, graduate student, who really took this project and, and, and really followed through and, and described these liquid phase particles. It's, a totally non-canonical way that we didn't appreciate. So if we go to the RC heterodimer, again, just this symmetry of the hollow enzyme, you see like a, uh, two little motifs with the heterodimer that are exposed to solvent, and when you have the tetramer, you can again appreciate the, the beauty, the um, symmetry of the holoenzyme, enzyme, but also these regions that were exposed to solvent, now they're interacting and, and really providing this um, interface for allosteric regulation of the protein, and so um, it's really, uh, and, and now this um, last. Um, Two year, in 2020, we published uh, cryo-EM structure of the whole protein, and it's a lower resolution, but it shows you how the whole thing is assembled as a very compact molecule at um, and, and at membranes. And so I think um, this is like a, a little acyl group at the end of the catalytic subunit, and normally in this free catalytic subunit that's bound in this acyl pocket in the C-lobe of the kinase. Um, and it doesn't associate with membranes, and R1 alpha holoenzyme, it's in there, it doesn't associate with membranes. But R2, that becomes flexible, and now that's enough to anchor the holoenzyme to membranes. And you have the ACAP there. You have, I mean, to me, this is really one of the next challenges, a major future challenge. What does that enzyme look like when it's anchored at the membranes? And I think we're gonna see some really, really interesting biochemistry. So here are the three um, holoenzymes, and again, you can appreciate the functional diversity from from these um, knockout experiments that were done mostly by Stan McKnight. Um, But the functional diversity is really reflected in this quaternary structure of the different holoenzymes. And um, these two, R1 beta and R2 beta, are highly expressed in brain. And so I'm going to tell you one of the experiments that we did. that. Um, it's, it's really an essential way if we're going to understand how these kinases are working in cells. This was a high-resolution, large-scale mosaic imaging that was done by Ronit Alus, who's now back in Israel um, with, with her own lab. Um, but we asked, are, one beta, are they localized differently? And, and we did this with the brain. You can do like this Google map, and so you can take, um, you can take the um, Google map of the whole brain, but then you can zoom in on different regions, and you can appreciate that... Um, this is. Um, I don't know if it's. Yeah, it's a guy. That they're localized very differently. You see the the R1 um, beta in the hippocampus. It has learning defects. That's where we expected it to be um, really enriched. But then you can also, in addition, you can zoom in and you can look down at individual cells. So these re- these little right green dots here, that's Golgi in these cells. So um, R2-beta is enriched at Golgi. And so it's just a a really important way to understand in tissues, in in real tissues, how these proteins are localized. And so again, going this whole thing from, you need the atomic level resolution, but you need to go all the way to cells and and tissues and animal phenotypes. We need all of those things. We need the, the physiology and the pharmacology and all of it. So this is again another progress since 2019, and this is a paper that was done by Dana Rams, who is a graduate student with an amazing graduate student with Sylvia Goodkind, um, looking at disease uh, um, mutations that are associated with um, PKA and and um, PKA signaling, and um, G alpha s is a prime candidate. So Sylvia is really focused on. GFS, many activating mutations in GFS um, uh, are associated with activating mutations in RAS and are associated with driving cancers. But um, you see there are other proteins in here too that are important. R1 alpha, I told you about R1 alpha. Um, and, and, but then you also see C alpha, and here you see C beta. So um, and, and you could see this, these are it's not just cancer, these are a lot of phenotypes, and you can see all tissues are really affected by pKa mutations. And again, I showed you the R1-alpha the structure. These are just the complex um, phenotypes that, you, uh, that result from these mutations in R1-alpha. So it's a very complex set of endocrine diseases and skeletal defects. And then there's some mutations also in the catalytic subunit, not as many. And they're mostly associated with inhibitor binding um, or potentially substrate binding. And um, so Cushing's disease, is, um, uh, some of them have been the ones that have been most characterized. Um, But then um, there's also C-alpha and C-beta, and there are also Sonic Hedgehog mutations here, and so these ones um, are um, Sonic Hedgehog mutations, and um, there's one in C-alpha, which is over here, uh, over here, but um, the the rest of them are in C-beta. So now I'm going to tell you Sonic Hedgehog mutations, (laughs) what's going on, and um, this Illuminating the Druggable Genome, which is a program that NIH started a couple of years ago, and there were three families, kinases, uh, GPCRs, and ion channels. And so we began to look at C beta. And you know, I've told you all this, PKA is the poster child of the kinome. It's like, but everything we know about PKA, almost everything, is about C alpha. And so if you look at now that what, what are, you know, the, illuminating all the kinase, most kinase structures. We have a small. Cl- Set of them we know a lot about, but there are many that are buried down at the bottom of the dark kinome that important, but we know hardly anything. And way down at the bottom is C beta. And so, um, so C beta, it's, it's kind of the forgotten isoform. And so um, we began to ask is it functionally non redundant with C alpha? Um, those sonic hedgehog mutations say probably not. Um, is it biochemically different? Is it targeted differently? And is C beta relevant for disease? And so again, I'm going to tell you, this is my last trip to to Europe was in November of 2019, and I went to meet Vic, Victor Ruiz, who um, had had these patients. Um, there were patients these seven patients um, from Australia, France, uh, 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 Spain, who had this really bizarre phenotype that um, uh, caused these uh, skeletal defects and polydactyl. You have extra digits. And there were C alpha and C beta. So there were three different patients from different parts of the world that had one single mutation in C alpha. But in C beta, there were four different patients with different mutations. And so um, Victor brought together this group. We published this paper first American Journal of Human Genetics, um, 2020. And and all of these mutations inhibited sonic hedgehog signaling. And so um, I'm just going to, these are where the mutations are. Um, One is down here in this docking site where the PKI helix docks. Two um, are at the the active site cleft here, these arginines. So can't really, these can't really bind ATP with high affinity. And so um, we're still functionally characterizing these mutations. But this led to another. Some of you heard uh, Ben Meyer's talk yesterday. Um, ben called me about two years ago in, I think, March or April and said, we had this really interesting observation of PKA and sonic hedgehog signaling. And so we started talking, and now we talk every week. But this paper is, we just sent our final reviews, is about to come out. But um, what Ben discovered is it embedded within the C-terminal tail of um, Smoothin, which is a GPCR, um, there is a PKI-like sequence, and this does bind to the catalytic subunit of PKA. And although it's it's a, not a high affinity like PKI, it's probably in the range that's physiologically relevant. Um, and so this can inhibit in a cyclic AMP-independent manner. And this has been really an exciting collaboration. I didn't even know Ben two years ago. So, um, and so here's the c beta isoform. So um, you, you ha- it's. C alpha and C alpha one and C beta one are most similar. They're about 20, 25 amino acids different, um, and this is um, the N terminus. And these other ones, so you have these splice variants. So they are all these splice variants of um, C beta, and these are are, are really an important part of, of how C beta is functioning. And so you can see. Um, the mutations are mostly in those tails that I told you about and in the end lobe. There's no active site ones, so these are going to be regulatory differences. And you could see from the in-situ hybridizations that C beta-4 is highly expressed in brain. Um, half, the, half the pKa in brain is you know, C beta-3, C beta-4, and all these isoforms. Um, and we don't know anything about it. I mean, half, 50%. And you could see this from also from the... Um, uh, in, uh, from the t- uh, uh, tissue-specific expression. These are expressed in a highly tissue-specific manner. And you can see that also here from the um, RNA analyses. And you can see R1 alpha and C alpha are uh, constitutive in all cells, but um, the C beta is highly enriched in, in neuronal cells. So it's highly enriched in neuronal cells. And again, you see it here from the tissue specific expression. C2, C beta 2 is longer than those. It has about 50 residues in the first exon. It's highly specific for um, uh, uh, lymphoid tissues, uh, T cells, B cells, uh, uh, lymphocytes. And um, whereas this, you can see how specific um, C beta 4 expression is for brains and specifically for neurons. So to ask, about C-beta in, in neurons, we went to another system, and this again is all since 2019, and this is a collaboration with Dorota Skaranska uh, krasik who um, is, uh, works on retina. And so the retina is highly differentiated, terminally differentiated neurons, a whole set of very different neurons doing different things. but. Um, we, we ended up uh, looking at imaging and, and focusing, in particular, on the rod and cone cells. And so we asked first, are they different? So this is like C-alpha, imaging of C-alpha in, in the retina. And um, you can see there's a lot of C-alpha expressed. It's expressed in most cells. C-beta is also expressed, but it's very different. So if you look at this pattern, especially in the rod and cone cells here, um, they're very, very different. And if you look more closely at the, um, the rod and the cone cells, so Um, This is, these especially the rod and the cone cells here, and you can see the C alpha, you have this little bright spot there, that's probably the cilia transition zone. So the outer segment is kind of a a highly differentiated cilia. And then this one goes to this ellipsoid, that's C beta. Um, So they're different, they don't localize the same. And so this is now just taking R2 alpha, it's very similar to um, C alpha, R2 alpha, and C alpha go to the cell body of of most cells and you can see it's here, but here's the C beta in this ellipsoid structure and so um, What is that ellipsoid? Um, And so that ellipsoid is mitochondria It's associated with mitochondria C beta and so we did a label for ox for complex four and you could see how beautifully it overlays with the C beta subunit and um, and so um, so C-beta is associated with mitochondria, and, um, you know, you can see in these Z-stacks, it goes all the way through. And so this is a really going to be, I think, a really exciting story for, um, for biochemistry and for biology and, um, and um, physiology as well. So we're um, now moving on. And again, you know, how does this, how does this change? How is it affected by light and dark? How is it affected by fasting, feeding, aging, diabetes? Neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. It's like, and these are all human tissues, so all these antibodies are human tissues. So I think it's a really important tool to be able to analyze human tissues, and then the mouse models are, you know, do they recapitulate the human disease or not? So those are things that we're thinking about. And I want to just acknowledge I've obviously had a very interdisciplinary team. I've worked with so many wonderful people over my whole career, but and I've acknowledged them. But I wanted to say these people who um, I didn't even know like in 2019 and and have become really major collaborators um, and we've really I think uncovered kind of a new frontier for PKA signaling. And then I want to thank, again, thank um, Herb for all his contributions to biochemistry and to nurturing all of us um, as scientists, his leadership of JBC. For NIH, most of my career has been supported by um, grants from the NIH, and for ASBMB, which has been my society for um, all these decades. And, And then, and with, again, a tribute to my colleague, Roger Chen, who has been a really motivating force for me for so long. He came in 1989 to UCSD and he he made me appreciate you can use chemistry to understand what's going on inside the cell, but that it's not enough to have a structure. He would always say, "Susan, that's not enough. You need to understand what that molecule is doing in a cell." And so, I've sort of tried to adhere to what he's told me and and really to open up biology by through this structural analysis. And now in this world that that you young people live in you. You can correlate this with disease phenotypes, and so it's it's really an extraordinary time to be a young scientist. So thank you, and um, I'm very honored to receive this award. We hope you have enjoyed this lecture. It was recorded in April 2022 in Philadelphia at the ASBMB Annual Meeting, held in conjunction for the final time with the Experimental Biology Conference. In 2023, the ASBNB Annual Meeting will be held in Seattle. Learn more at discoverbnb.asbnb.org.